Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in California. Happy Martin Luther King Day weekend. For this year's Martin Luther King Day, we're going to be posting two encore episodes on Dr. King. The first one we put up on April 4th, 2020, the 52nd anniversary of his assassination. And in it, we talk about the true substance and radicalism of Martin Luther King Jr., We look at the commodification of King's legacy and how everyone from the Libertarian Party to the anti-abortion movement to tech companies in Silicon Valley are trying to sell you their latest gadgets by claiming his legacy. In truth, Martin Luther King fought and opposed the, quote, giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism. We get into all of that and hope you enjoy the show. Today we're going to be talking, today's the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we're going to have a special episode on MLK. And we're very excited to talk about this. This actually kind of goes along with our theme. As folks who are regular listeners know, our non-guest, non-interview episodes are around the history of liberalism and our critiques of liberalism. And so the, the Martin Luther King Jr. definitely plays a role in that. Yeah, we, um, you know, we've done uh, shows on the, the, the New Deal, the populism in the New Deal, and then we did one most recently on the Great Society. And we did talk about King a little, but, but you know, clearly and in, inadequately because, you know, the civil rights movement of King are, are such a huge element of, of that era and of the nature of liberalism and, and of the changes and, you know, failures of, of liberalism. So... It, I think it deserves, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a set aside on its own. Yeah. And, uh, I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna actually start with, um, a speech by King, which actually happened on April 4th, 1967, a year to the day of his assassination before his assassination. It's his, uh, beyond Vietnam speech, which he gave actually in New York. Um, when he spoke out against the war. And so I'm going to just get that started here. And this is also a new experiment on Green and Red where we're using audio on the video for the first time ever. So let's see how this goes. And a reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia 
which they had not found in southwest Georgia and East Holland. And so we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. And so we watch them in brutal solidarity burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos. All right, and that was uh, Martin Luther King from April 4th, 1967, uh, a speech that he gave calling for an end to the, to the war in Vietnam. And, you know, um, the, the first time I heard that, you know, I was kind of blown away because Martin Luther King has become uh, one of the great figures in American history, an official holiday, right? You don't, you know, that's, you know, he's up there with presidents, right? And, um, you know, and it's, it's been commercialized and commodified as well. So everybody uses that as a chance to get a day off work or go shopping and they have sales and everything like that. And the commercials, whether it be McDonald's or a, a local furniture store, or whatever, always feature the, the famous, I have a dream speech as they should. It's very powerful. And it's, it's, it's this kind of call to come together, uh, you know, in a moment of solidarity. <clears throat> and this speech is very different, which is why you never hear it. Right. Uh, in this speech, King, you know, the, the segment we just heard, you know, King is talking about uh, the nature of the war in Vietnam, the brutality and how poor people, poor young men, both black and white, are fighting together and allegedly bringing democracy to this place where it doesn't even exist, you know, in the United States. So you're not going to hear that on, you know, celebrations of January 15th or of April 4th, right? Right. I mean, I mean, I, I find it, it's, it's interesting, the the way in which liberals and actually conservatives have co-opted King, you know, not just his message, but just like King, the sort of like the the symbol and the figure and the sort of like iconic image. I know, I know libertarians, Southern libertarians who basically talk about King as their hero and, and basically like reference him as the sort of like, you know, the model of how they, want to bring about libertarianism, how they want to like kind of reduce government intervention in their lives. And the abortion movements also, you know, often reference King and the civil rights movement, um, which is, 
you know, that it's just like, well, and, and at one level it's disgusting. And then at, a, at another level, it's just like, it's a, it's a fascinating study of how people try to co-opt these movements, our movements, which are, are well, these powerful movements. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the, the Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, they present is pretty safe, right? It's a movement that like said, we're going to act nonviolently and we're, you know, and you know, it, it got attacked obviously from Southern whites, but you know, people like Malcolm X and young blacks often were very critical because of, of what they saw as, as a movement that was being too docile. And so, um, you know, everybody kind of tried to kind of create this version of the civil rights movement of King and you, you leave out certain parts and, you know, a lot of people benefited from leaving out the stuff that we're going to talk about because, you know, that's what we want to do today is talk about, I mean, King obviously is an American liberal. He's a 20th century American liberal, but he's way more than that. And ultimately the story of the civil rights movement in King is kind of one of the, the most important stories of the failure of, of 20th century liberalism, you know, and the, and the shortcomings and the limits. I mean, I think he took it to the limit. And when he tried to do more than that, we talked about this a little bit the last time, you know, it, it, it you know, the liberals wouldn't accept it. And that speech and later in that speech, and I think what really infuriated Lyndon Johnson and, and the people who had supported him years earlier was uh, he, he, he uh, utters the phrase, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, uh, my own government. So he called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, which is really pretty stunning. And I think that in many ways constituted the final break. And of course, like you pointed out, the, the weird irony of it, it was exactly a day, a year, I'm sorry, to the day uh, when he was assassinated in, in Memphis. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually uh, am kind of looking forward to what we're about to talk about because, because like, the, the sort of like king, which is co-opted by liberals and conservatives is actually the sort of like this empty kind of like surface level, superficial sort of king. Whereas we're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, um, we're going to talk a little bit about actually the, the real, the, I don't want to say meat, but the real like substance of, of who he, who he was and, and what was, what was happening in the time and how, what King was doing, particularly at the end of his life was, a sort of response to this like American liberalism where it was like war abroad, but like these sort of like top down reform domestic policies at home, which we, we hit on last time, but we'll, we'll dig into more now. Yeah. I mean, I think King, you know, and we all know the history of it, the, you know, he becomes a, a national figure during the Montgomery bus boycott and, and so forth. But I think where it really kind of starts to, 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 turn for him came um, in the early, we talked about this early 1960, when a bunch of younger students in the South who had been working through the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SELC, wanted to become more vigorous, more militant, more assertive, more aggressive, whatever word you want to use, within the context of nonviolence, of course. And they went to a woman who was very active in SELC, Ella Baker, and she helped them create SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And Ella Baker went to most of the established civil rights leaders in the African-American community, NAACP, CORE, you know, groups like that. And they didn't want anything to do with it. They thought it was too, you know, provocative and that it would create a, a uh, you know, backlash against them. King, among those well-known civil rights leaders, was the one who, who uh, you know, accepted Ella Baker's, you know, ideas, who, who agreed with her. And so he began to work with, with SNCC, and on February 1st, 1960, four students from North Carolina A&T went into a uh, little department store lunch counter and did the first sit-in. And that's really critical because, 
the, I mean, sit-ins are, are, they're nonviolent, right? But, you know, and Scott, you know this better than I do because you've been doing this for so long. They're very provocative too. I mean, that's not an act of obedience. That's not an act of docility. You know, so this was a way of, of you know, kind of confronting the system at, at the very point, at the very point of, of you know, existence. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that um, there are many definitions and many strategies of nonviolent direct action. Um, one of the one of the things I actually often talk about in my nonviolent direct action trainings, and I actually reference the the lunch counter sit-ins of the of the early '60s, is what we call creating a crisis. And so, while it was like a nonviolent act, it was like non like mostly non-confrontational, at least on the on the activist side, the student side. So they went into a into a whites only lunch counter. Um, it was Woolworths, right? Um, uh, and, and basically sat in when it was actually against, you know, local law, state law, whatever, to basically for blacks to be in those spaces. And then they just sat there and ordered and then took the abuse and which was including like violent attack and then violent attack, even as they left and things. And you can see the really sort of like dramatic pictures of people having milkshakes poured over their head, you know, and, and things like that. But like, what those sit-ins did, and that was one, but like many more happened. Another, you know, kind of prominent set of sit-ins actually were happening and began in Nashville, not soon, not long, excuse me, not long after the Greensboro ones, which is actually, I believe it was in Nashville at the, at the black college there where actually a lot of this was sort of like kind of planned and organized out of. Um, but, but like we began to see these student sit-ins, these black student sit-ins around the South and it really kind of began to create a crisis for, uh, for like the, the kind of segregation as power holders and the, and you know, all the way up to democratic politicians in Congress. Yeah. Richard, um, the Richard Russell's of the world. <laughs> the, right? guy Joe Biden, the guy Joe Biden got along with. Yeah, exactly. Joe Biden brags about getting along with. Um, yeah, Str- by, well, that's Strom Thurmond, but yeah. yeah. And, by April of 1960, so three months in over 50,000 Southerners, mostly youth, mostly younger people, a lot of students had participated in sit-ins. So yeah, it spread from North Carolina throughout the entire South. And, you know, this was a very, you know, kind of controversial uh, move uh, on by, by SNCC and by these young activists because most of the establishment community, and by that time, you know, John Kennedy was running for president in 1960. And, you know, Kennedy now has this incredible reputation, but Kennedy uh, offered really no support uh, for the civil rights movement. Back then, we've talked about this before, the South was still mostly democratic. And Kennedy certainly didn't want to, you know, he needed those states to win the election. And so Kennedy really wasn't very helpful. The liberals weren't very helpful. Uh, The basic line throughout that entire period was you need to wait, you need to slow down. And later King would write a very famous book called Why We Can't Wait for that reason, which was directed at, you know, white moderns, white liberals. You know, you know who your enemy is. These are Southerners and they're right out of central casting. People like Bull Connor and Lori Pritchard or Ross Barnett or George Wallace. Jim Clark. Yeah, but but it's it's people like uh, well you know even in that there's another part of that speech which I would you know urge all of you to listen to in its its entirety where he even says is you know they they tell us to be uh, uh, you know uh, they they use violence against the Vietnamese but then they tell us to be nonviolent against Jim Clark they praised us when we said let's be nonviolent to Jim Clark but when I said we should be nonviolent toward the Vietnamese they attacked us right so he's pointing out that. Inherent contradiction, which we talked about, liberals are very militarist, they're very interventionist. And um, 
yet, you know, in the United States, they're basically telling not just, you know, African-Americans, but any oppressed group that you need to sit back and take it. You need to wait and just be moderate and don't be too aggressive and don't fight too hard or anything like that. You know, liberals, and you're seeing that today, uh, you know, we're, right now we're seeing this wave of more or less wildcat strikes that really unparalleled in, I don't know how long. And, yeah. uh, and the union bosses are, aren't part of it. I mean, these are, you know, workers who are finally saying, look, we've had enough. And that's what SNCC, I think, represented. You know, this, rep th this idea that, you know, these liberals have told us to slow down, told us to wait, we're gonna help you and all this kind of stuff. And we're not getting anywhere. Uh, we're still living in this, this apartheid system. And this is six years after Brown v. Board, you know, which was supposed to have segregated, uh, desegregated the school. But in fact, they really had much. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, this kind of like, well, one thing I, you got me kind of off on a t thinking on a tangent around the COVID resistance is that we're definitely seeing these sort of wildcats, which are sort of outside of what's norm and what's being allowed uh, by labor bosses and by like liberals, but like, you know, also the sort of like what there is of a radical left in this country is like cheering them on and joining them and supporting them. Um, the, the other thing I'm, that uh, is really kind of like strikes me about this period is that there is a level of domestic repression that has like existed in this country for a long time. And we can trace it back to the founding of the FBI, but it happened a long time before that. And so we also, um, you know, kind of reference some like previous episodes that we've had is that like where we see students and the civil rights movement rising up around segregation, we also see like the domestic surveillance and, and, and uh, even intervention by the federal authorities um, begin to escalate as well. But you know, that, that is something that has happened for a long time. It still happens today. Our friend Jake Conroy, who was on a couple of months ago, was a, it was a, um, you know, was a target of that sort of like domestic repression doing animal rights work. Scott Crow, who was on with us two weeks ago, who did, you know, relief effort in New Orleans was also like heavily targeted by the FBI as well. And so like, it's just like a, um, so to get to King is like, you know, Jake or Hoover and the FBI actually target um, the civil rights movement in King with all kinds of like outlandish, like tactics trying to like, kind of like, you know, demobilize and, and decimate the civil rights movement. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the antagonism, that the, the hatred Hoover had for King is, is pretty well known. And keep in mind, you know... Uh, uh, oh, I forgot my other point, is that with the COVID resistance stuff we're seeing today, which is like these wildcats, you know, we've been seeing more wildcats lately in the last couple of years, teachers, grad students, things like that. But like, I don't, don't count, don't, don't think for a minute that the, the feds are not kind of like on top of these like walkouts and wildcats going on right now. Oh yeah, they're clearly aware of all it. Just like you know, I mean, just like they were aware of the the civil rights. Well, far more so now because we have the surveillance state that didn't exist. So, yeah. you know, clearly back then you're worried about snitches, but you know now it's just electronic. And um, but but I think SNCC was kind of viewed much like kind of those wildcat strikes. That was outside of the norm of what you should be doing. And so that's I think why it's important. And, that, and King's. Uh, uh, support, I think, was important too. And at the same time, SNCC was also going into communities to organize. And, you know, we made brief mention of this and, and I kind of missed the cue. But, um, you know, it made me think that, you know, we, our second interview, I believe, was with uh, Stott Lind, who's a very well known radical activist for well over a half century. And um, in 1964, Stoughton went to Mississippi uh, to work with SNCC. Well, he was, he, yeah, he was, he was a professor at Emory in Georgia. 
And he um, actually ran the Freedom Education, um, Freedom Summer Education Project. So, and this had been ongoing for years where not only were, was SNCC doing sit-ins and these kind of actings, actions, but, but they were doing broader organizing within communities. King's main role was, was media. He was the guy you put in front of a camera because he was so good at it. But that wasn't the whole movement. And that's why, you know, we do this focus on King, which in a way is not really historically what we should be doing because there's so much more to it than that. And these people on the ground level who are organizing are really doing, you know, this kind of hardcore uh, type of activism that we see not just in, in, in civil rights issues, but in all kinds of issues, labor issues. And, you know, just it's, it's a basic core element of ag- activism. And some of the core, some of the, I mean, the interesting part about that also, like as an organizer, is that like these campaigns and this organizing is also like a sort of like uh, um, a school for leadership development. And so like we see like national figures arise out of like the SNCC organizing. So it's like James Bevel, who became a keen lieutenant, I believe, Diane Nash, uh, and, and like the kind of sort of most known is John Lewis. Um, all of which like participated in the actions, but also were like sort of like key strategists and organizers in that as well. And then, you know, toward the end, we'll talk about it. And these guys, many of them become the, the Black Panthers as well, you know, yeah. when the movement kind of falls apart. Yeah. So, so there's a lot going on. And within that framework, King, um, King seems conciliatory. He is the public figure, you know, but he's also, and we used this phrase last time, he's also advocating a militant form of nonviolence and he also has a critique that, that he kind of keeps under wraps for the most part because he needs supportive liberals, which is hard to come by. Remember when Hoover is going after uh, King, I mean, first, you know, Eisenhower was president through, through 1960, but then it's JFK. And JFK was really reluctant to do anything. It was kind of forced to during the Freedom Rides because they became so violent and they were being televised nationally. People were seeing the buses getting bombed and people being pulled off buses and beaten, you know, that, that, uh, um, you know, and King kept challenging Kennedy. Kennedy had no choice at that point. He didn't want to. He was not some kind of champion of, of uh, Black Americans or champion of civil rights until he actually had no choice because the violence had become too overwhelming. Uh, and it was directed at, at the South, right? This is a Southern movement, too. What, you know, what the, the initial days of the civil rights movement until 1965 are taking place in the South because in the North, you don't have this legal system of apartheid. You have racism and bigotry and discrimination all over the place. But in the South, that's a law. You're allowed to do it. And so King is operating within that system. And he does have a critique of it that isn't, you know, as conciliatory and as positive as, as you know, history has us believe. King is a critic, even then, of American society and not just uh, the Southern racist. He writes the letter from a Montgomery jail, you know, which talks about white moderates and, and white liberals and so forth. And so, you know, when you look at King that way, it's very different. And, and this, you know, his his own thoughts really offer a damning critique of that liberal era. And, um, you know, we both read a lot about it a few years ago on Martin Luther King Day. I wrote a long piece, which I, I published called MLK for sale, you know, question mark, how to, how to commodify a radical or something like that. Which we'll link in the episode details of this episode. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if any of you remember the, the a brilliant show, uh, Boondocks when it was on, but uh, Aaron Magruder did a, a great episode when uh, he had Martin Luther King come back to life. And King became very, it was during the Iraq war and King spoke against the Iraq war and he, you know, was basically talking to, you know, and, and, and everybody disliked him, right? And he, he kind of went nuts at the end and a lot of uh, existing black leaders like Rob Abernathy were really pissed off at Aaron Magruder for doing that. So there is this, this radicalism in, in King and one element of it, which I really 
he really kind of had to suppress until much later, was his critique of, of capitalism. I mean, he, he used the phrase democratic uh, socialism. And he wrote a letter to, uh, I think before they got married, he wrote a letter to Credit Scott King. Uh, in the 1950s, he said, I, I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. And this is the 1950s where he's kind of accepting this. And then in 1965, he was giving a speech to a labor council. And we said that before, he had a really close connection uh, to labor. And he said, there must be a better distribution of wealth. And maybe America should move to, toward a democratic socialism. And then in 1966, King said, and this is, I think, is the, the really kind of the most telling one. He said, solving the economic problem of the Negro would involve billions of dollars. You can't end slums without profit being taken out of the slums. But if you do that, you're really tampering and getting on dangerous ground. You are messing with the captains of industry. So, so yeah, this is a key smart guy, obviously. And he, he understood that. Uh, he said, if we did this, we would be in difficult water because it really means that we are saying that something is wrong with capitalism, right? Now that's the part of King you ain't hearing about, right? No, no. And, and, and after 1965, after the Voting Rights Act was passed, because that kind of ended, that, that crushed, right? This, this legal apartheid system in South, the Voting Rights Act and, and the, the Civil Rights Act the year before. After that, King began creating this national campaign, thinking about this national movement. And now capitalism, not just Southern apartheid, is the, the real target. And that's way bigger. That's, that's something that, you know, you're really, as he said, treading into difficult water. He understood that. We're treading, look at the language. We're treading into difficult water. We're on difficult ground. So he, he knew what he was doing. And, and you ain't going to see that in a McDonald's commercial on Martin Luther King weekend. So <laughs> No. And, and you, know, uh, it, it, you know, we've had a, a presidential candidate this year who's identified himself as a democratic socialist. And these same liberals attack him. Uh, the same way in which they like attack King or like, you know, we're looking for ways to undermine King the way they undermine Sanders and Sanders isn't even that radical. He's not even as radical as King was. No, like I said, if it, go look at Walter Mondale's 1984 platform, it's not much different. Now in 1967, he gave a speech called where do we go from here, which was the title of a book. And unfortunately I've never found the speech. So this is a fairly long sequence, but I, I want to read it because I think it's, it's important. Uh, this is Martin Luther King in 1967. Uh, and this shows how he'd kind of, his analysis had expanded beyond, just this idea of race to, to one that's much bigger. Uh, this is King, 1967. I want to say to you, as I move to my conclusion, as we talk about where do we go from here, that we honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. And one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising questions about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. You see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water? These are questions that must be asked. Bernie Sanders doesn't say stuff like that. No, no. <laughs> uh, he's close. You know, yeah. I don't want to go on it too much because, you know, but still, that's really powerful. And, you know, imagine 
you know, Lyndon Johnson in the White House obviously knows what King is saying. He's heard King rip the Vietnam War with that uh, uh, little segment we gave you at the very beginning. He heard King say that America is the most violent society in the world today. He's hearing King talk about, you know, class. He's hearing King say, who owns the oil? Who owns the iron ore? You know, talk about a restructuring of American society. You know, and, and this is why uh, um, Harry McPherson's, you know, in, it, when they're talking about the poor people, so the Negro is sullen and ungrateful. They're furious. They're just, they, you know, they believe in this patronizing way that, you know, we did so much to get the Civil Rights Act. And look at that. You know, they're not even grateful for it. They're still yelling. They still want more. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and well, Johnson saw himself as a Lincoln, I'm sure. So, oh, absolutely, no, and I mean, even even you know, King thought that that he could kind of create this relationship, kind of like Frederick Douglass and Lincoln, right? And um, I mean, with Kennedy, it was very hard to do, and Kennedy was very reluctant to do anything. Johnson, I think we talked about this before too, was more sincere, but there were clearly limits to what Lyndon Johnson would do, and and King certainly went beyond that after 1965, absolutely, in statements, you know, speeches like that. Um, you know, the apartheid regime is kind of being dismantled. And the liberals, I think, expected King kind of more or less to stop there and get on board with the Great Society and to keep supporting the Vietnam War. Bayard Rustin, who was one of the most important people in the civil rights movement in that era, continued to support the Vietnam War. And that was kind of a compact that a lot of uh, civil rights leaders had made with these liberals in order to get their support for things like the March on Washington and other programs. Uh, but King wasn't doing that. King wouldn't go along with that. And so he... And he's in this kind of weird position, too, because he continues to advocate nonviolence. He continues to have this kind of approach that is, you know, conciliatory and non-confrontational at the same time that, you know, a lot of young blacks especially are, are trending more toward the ideas that Malcolm X had. So he's really kind of caught in between. The liberals don't, you know, find him ungrateful. And a lot of younger people say, well, you're not doing enough, even though he's starting to come, you know, kind of come out more and more. Right. And this is where we're seeing the sort of rise of black power where Stick is becoming more radicalized. The Black Panthers are formed in, here in Oakland in 1967. I think so. Well, 66, 67. Yeah. When did SNCC, SNCC went through a period, they, they kicked out all, I mean, SNCC had been a, an interracial movement. There were a lot of white people in SNCC, like Tom Hayden got his start in SNCC, Mary King, Casey Hayden. Mm -hmm. And I forget when it was like around 1965, you see SNCC essentially kick out the white students who were in it. And you start to see people who are, you know, more you know, radical or whatever word you want to use kind of come to the fore. And I think it was in 1966, the, the Black Panthers were formed. There was a, a SNCC chapter that wanted to run a, a slate and a campaign in, in Alabama, Lowndes County, Alabama. And they chose as their, their, uh, you know, their logo, a Black Panther, right. like a, a Republican. And then they gravitated toward the North and became a real fixture in Oakland. You know, yeah, after and that. The North and the West, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, the West. Yeah, North, that's what I meant. <laughs> um, well, no, there was actually, a, I mean, the two biggest and probably most important historically Black Panther chapters were in Oakland, of course, and in Chicago, which is where Fred Hampton and um, Mark, Mark, uh, the young, Mark Clark, Mark Clark were right. yeah. brilliant theorists, brilliant guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so King, in a sense, they're getting, I mean, they're not, they're doing, they're going about this much differently than King and King. What's also, I think in that clip we played earlier, when King says, all these people want to get violent and he says, I understand it. You know, I get it. I'm still advocating against it. You know, I'm urging them not to do it, but I understand where they're coming from. An important thing that King actually did agree to do, though, which like we don't see like as we see more as we, as we see groups get more radical today and, and even like are, you know, um, saying that they're they will engage in self-defense if they if they want to. Um, and I'm talking about like kind of Antifa groups, things like that, is that like King actually refused to actually denounce groups, the black power groups that 
did did perform acts of self-defense. Yep. Yep. Which yeah, which like he, you don't see the Sierra Club doing when it comes to like Antifa or or Earth First or anything like that. Oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um no, I mean King, you know, I remember hearing an interview a long time ago with Jesse Jackson, who I think was rhetorically Jesse was kind of giving, you know, kind of making that argument. And I mean, to a large degree, a lot of this was like a tactical, you know, decision. Yeah. I mean, King, King always said, I understand their anger. I understand their rage. And, um, you know, last week you mentioned how in Chicago, he went to Chicago and, you know, he was, and King said the people, King and Andrew Young said the people in Chicago could teach the people in Mississippi how to hate. He said he'd never believe it because King, you know, he's from the South. You know, and he grew up in, in pretty much an affluent, you know, uh, uh, background. His father was a very well-known minister. And so when he got to Chicago, he was kind of shocked to see that kind of racial hatred in the North. You know, he, he was you know, a smart guy. He knew there was racism in the North, but that really kind of threw, threw him. And so, you know, to a large degree, his argument for nonviolence was tactical because, you know, he, essentially he said, like, we, we can't fight against these people. We just we just can't do it. And now it's, I think, an argument that, like, even Scott Crow, I think, when we were talking, kind of said the same thing, right? Yeah. You know, these lefties who have fantasies about buying guns and all this stuff, you know, come on. Yeah. Uh, but but King also understood he wasn't, you know, in any way condemning people who, who were, you know, you know, demanding more. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I said this in the in our in that last episode um, when we were talking about the poor people's movement is that King like called for like mass civil disobedience instead of just like individual acts of civil disobedience. He called for like nonviolent sabotage. He called for like mass disruption and and, and agree that, you know, he's not going to call for armed struggle because we're going to lose because the, you know, the government has more guns, more planes, more tanks, et cetera. Yeah. And, and to a large degree, I mean, there was this tactical, I mean, I think he, he was genuinely at heart a pacifist, everything in his entire life, even based on that. He had written a dissertation about a very famous progressive minister named Walter Rauschenbusch. Uh, and he came out of that kind of social gospel of the progressive era. You know, that idea that you take the, the ministry and, um, you know, you, you use it to do what, you know, Jesus did, right? You help the poor and all that kind of stuff. And this at the time was the counterpoint to uh, Andrew Carnegie's gospel of wealth, right? Get rich and help poor people by giving them dimes, that kind of thing. So he came out of that tradition. So I think that, you know, his pacifism was, was certainly genuine, but he also understood why people would want to do more than that. You know, he, he was, his house was firebombed. He was shot. He was stabbed. Um, you know, the irony, because he and Martin Luther King are often projected differently, right? They're the kind of two different counters um, on this is that uh, King actually, you know, King went to jail. King was arrested many times. King was attacked many times. Malcolm went to jail for, for crime, for being a criminal, right? So King actually was in danger, you know, as much as anybody in America, you know, in the 20th century, probably. So yeah. he wasn't this kind of docile, obedient, you know, just kind of patsy in any way for, uh, for liberals that sometimes he was, you know, accused of. Yep. Hey, just to remind folks, uh, this is Green and Red with Scott and Bob, Scott Parkin and Bob Bizenko. Uh It's April 4th, and we are talking about um, Martin Luther King on the on the anniversary of the the fifty second anniversary of his assassination in in Memphis. Uh, Green and red. You can listen. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, you can also become a patron at uh, patreon.com backslash Green Red Podcast. We have a, a small but mighty growing group of donors. I think it's maybe six people now. 
Uh, and so maybe five or six people and uh, just encourage you to like check us out and listen in more and uh, much appreciated. Absolutely. We've uh, really been you know, kind of pleased with the, the response we're getting. Uh, we started to do this just because it's something we've talked about for a while and it's, it's really, um, we've done way more than, than I think we ever thought we would. Obviously COVID has a lot to do with that, yeah. but we have time, but uh, um, it has been really great. And, and the response has been great. Um, and we get to talk about stuff like this because we've had these conversations so many times uh, before and um, this is one of, I think, the more important topics when I'm a, as a professor, when I talk about this in class, I, I do spend a good deal amount of time on it and, and really emphasize it. Um, you know, King, to, to go back to that, um, he's, he's, you know, the, this media portrayal we have of him is, is it an accidental one. It's done, you know, on purpose to kind of give you this idea that you can fight back, but only within these kind of very certain structures and within these kind of accepted this accepted spectrum, right, of, of dissent. And you have to kind of be obedient. You have to kind of, you know, not go too far, not say too much, not do too much, which is why liberals condemn Antifa today. Yeah, Asking politely is what they Yeah, do. exactly. Within yeah. the confines of... Civility, right? And, and yeah. liberals are still, I mean, the civility thing. And, the, and I mean, I, if we really wanted to go off on a rant, we could talk about cancel culture and call-out culture because I think that's, you know, those words didn't exist at the time. But essentially, you know, uh, the phrase that was often used in the 1960s was angry Negro, right? Oh, he's an angry Negro, as opposed to an articulate Negro, right? So you have these coded words, which can tell you what liberals are thinking, right? And so angry Negro is, you know, obviously Malcolm X was the angriest Negro, right? Black Panthers were angry Negroes, right? That was the way, and these are liberals who see the world that way. And actually quite a, quite a lot of, like with the Black Panthers, quite a lot of blacks. The Black Panthers were not overwhelmingly popular, even in the black community. There were a lot of blacks, civil rights movement, uh, veterans, Southern blacks, older African-Americans who thought the Black Panthers were going way too far, right? With the rhetoric and the whole, the symbolism and, and all that kind of stuff. I saw an interview recently with Adolph Reed, who if you haven't read any of his stuff, you should. And he was kind of making fun of the Black Panthers. And he said, uh, watching the Black Panthers march down, you know, through Oakland with their, you know, their berets and their leather coats. He said, if you ever walking down the streets of Vietnam, would you see Viet Cong that had jackets that said gorilla on the back or Viet Cong <laughs> on the back? So we can talk about the Black Panthers later, but I think King kind of shook his head. You know, he, he, he understood where it was coming from. And the Black Panthers program actually had a significant amount of Marxist influence in it. And, and I think King, I mean, King had made references before to Karl Marx favorably, right? So uh, uh, King is not some kind of, you know, just, just this, this kind of liberal who's, who's not going to stand up, this acquiescent liberal. He's not that at all. And you see that in, in what he says about the economy. He's saying this publicly now. After 1965, he takes off the, the you know, he, he goes free. He's free now, right? And so, um, you know, he talked about the economy. He, he talked about the Vietnam War in that very powerful speech uh, 53 years ago today on April 4th, 1967 at the Riverside Baptist Church. Um, as we mentioned last week, he advocated a boycott of the Olympics, which in 1967 and 1968 was a huge deal. It was like advocating treason, right? Uh, because, uh, you know, blacks were so important to the Olympic team. And this was like the epic battle between good and evil, you know, the United States versus the Soviet Union. And so um, to, to suggest that blacks should not participate was immensely radical. He was also demanding, uh, by the way, at that point, that Muhammad Ali's um, heavyweight uh, title be restored because he you know, had to take it away when he refused to be drafted. 
So again, he's like, he's out there on all this stuff. And this is not, and the liberals don't like it. And that's, I think the most important thing, because we have this idea of this synchronicity and yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. He shifts from the articulate Negro to the angry Negro. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. He's a sullen and ungrateful, right? I mean, right. that's what they're talking about. When, when McPherson says the Negro is sullen and ungrateful, what do you, you know, he's kind of using it collectively, but what he means is Martin Luther King, you know, cause King is right, right. You know, organizing this poor people's campaign because Johnson has given, you know, King, all of these things. He gave him yeah. the voting rights act and the civil rights act. And he like basically ended segregation. So why is he so ungrateful? Yeah. And now, and you know, we all usually equate that with like, you know, this kind of conservative or these Southerners or whatever we're talking about, you know, the, the epitome of, of liberalism, maybe the height of 20th century liberalism, right? FDR and LBJ. And these are, F, you know, LBJ's people who, Greased the skids throughout the early 60s to, to make the, the march on Washington for jobs and justice go, go more smoothly. Uh, they, you know, Johnson, with, with political risk, uh, got the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act passed and, you know, made very powerful speeches, you know, which I, I think we should take sincerely. At the same time, though, um, King was way beyond that, way beyond that. And so to look at King within the con that construct of liberalism is very different. And um, there's a new book, I don't know if it's out yet or not, by a, a very well-known and, and, and outstanding historian named Peniel Joseph, which talks about King and Malcolm. And I mentioned last time, I think, a, a very good book written probably 20 years ago now by uh, the late James Cone, C-O-N-E, who was a theologian at the uh, Union Seminary in New York, very famous place, and uh, called Martin and Malcolm in America. And I think both of them kind of see that there was this kind of, uh, you know, kind of convergence you know, with Malcolm in 1965 and then King in 67 and 68, where they both began to see that these problems were bigger than simply that of, of you know, segregation in the South or discrimination in the North, that there was this kind of systemic problem that really had to be addressed. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, it's um, the, uh, the, the sort of like shift is like, it's, it's much needed right now actually is what uh, is what's kind of coming to mind is that like, you know, we, we need some of the like leaders, leaders who are outside of like the sort of like kind of political institutions, but who are like within movements who are like, they're either being, they're either being like sort of like ignored and silenced or they're portrayed as being too radical. And I just, it's just like things are so dire right now. And, and it kind of does remind me of this period in the late sixties where we, where we're seeing like this, like, it, it's you know things are different but like somewhat the same as we're seeing this brutal war we're seeing like kind of like unrest whether it's in the in newark and detroit or whether it's on campuses and things like that and um it really sort of like i the situation now where you know we're seeing voter repression we're seeing like issues around climate we're seeing issues around labor and the economy and now all of this kind of mixed up with this pandemic it's just like it's just like that where we've seen the sort of like liberal institutions being degraded for like 40 years. We've also seen these sort of like movements, which like have pushed them traditionally have been completely degraded for the last 40 or 50 years as well. And yeah. You, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. There, there, I just feel like there needs to be some sort of a shift and I'm, I'm not sure. No, what I, is. I think you're right. And you know, you can't take <laughs> some particular individual and place like, I can't take Martin Luther King from 1967 and put him into 2020 America but you got to speculate that it, that that if he were somebody exactly like him today would be pretty far out there. Yeah. Right. I mean, it wouldn't be Bernie Sanders. 
you know, and that's probably, you know, in terms of national presence, that's as strong as it gets, right? Um, well, I mean, I think the speech on Vietnam, I keep going back to that because, you know, the idea was always in American history, and, and this is why a lot of civil rights leaders supported the Vietnam War, is that you don't criticize your, your country's behavior abroad. Yeah. I mean, that got Debs thrown in prison. So when King spoke out about the Vietnam War, that was like just incredibly powerful. And, and you know, the, the White House was furious, like really enraged by that. And like fast forward, um, you know, in the last, you know, year, let's say, um, Bernie Sanders a couple times, I think it's called for an end to sanctions against Iran. Um, can't really think of much more than that. He also called Chavez a dead communist dictator. Um, he did speak, say some decent things about the Cuban revolution, but nothing close to, to what King said about the Vietnam war is being uttered today by the squad or Elon Omar probably is a little different than that. In fact, was it last week, uh, uh, there was a letter in, uh, passed the, essentially asking the government to end sanctions on Venezuela, which is just being, Venezuela and Iran and Cuba right now are, are experiencing uh, the weaponization of coronavirus by the United States, these brutal sanctions. Uh, uh, one group has estimated, led by Jeffrey Sachs, who used to be a Harvard economist, right, uh, has said that uh, even before coronavirus, American sanctions were responsible for 40,000 people being killed, dying in Venezuela. Yeah. So now, and so last week, 11 senators signed a letter asking the U.S. government, asking Trump, to relieve sanctions against Venezuela during this crisis. And um, not everybody even was, had a signature, like uh, Murphy, the guy from Connecticut, there was just like a symbol there. I guess he wasn't there. So it wasn't like you had to be there physically present to sign this letter. And my point there is that among those 11, guess who was not one of them? The senior senator, I'm sorry, the junior senator from Vermont <laughs> was not included in that, right? And I know, you know, uh, uh, one time, you know, when ALC was doing this video, she's making stew and chopping potatoes and things. You know, she said the issue in, in uh, Venezuela is an issue between democracy and authoritarianism, right? So she bought it. And even during that very famous confrontation, when Elon Omar confronted Elliot Abrams and everybody, you know, that made her a rock star. Abrams says um, the issue in Venezuela is between uh, democracy and totalitarianism. And Elon Omar's response was nobody denies that, right? King didn't play those kind of, he, King didn't hedge it. When you call the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, that's, that's not cryptic, right? Yeah. And so, so King was out there and that was clearly uh, a shot across the bow at these liberals. And when, you know, and I've always said that, that you have to do both. If you're going to be a, a radical or a revolutionary or whatever you want to call yourself, you have to do two things. You have to fight for class, you have to fight the class struggle at home and you have to be anti-imperialist abroad. You can't, they're, they're, they're the same thing. They are the same struggle. It's a little bit the opposite of the liberal agenda, which is like fight, fight, do intervention, military interventions abroad. And, and that's why people yeah. need to listen to the Green and Red podcast. Yeah, exactly. That's where you get the, the real shit, man. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, this, this ain't pod save America. This ain't, you know, or uh, any of those things, you know. And, and if I may be like chippy, you know, I mean, Scott and I are smarter than like, you know, the Chapo kids and all that kind of stuff so we, we actually know this shit uh but yeah no, that's exactly it that's what liberals are they're interventionist abroad and they want to maintain stability at home and yeah. stability to them means you ameliorate the worst social conditions through reform and lbj was great at that until he wasn't great at it anymore 
and the the GOP doesn't even believe in that. They just think they crush everything in sight. They're just like this big mega monster that's you know like a Godzilla movie or something that just steps on everything in its way. Neo, they're neo feudalism feudalists. Well, and 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 as they become more, you know, like Attila the Hun, the liberals keep shifting to get closer to them. Mm-hmm. And this is why you know uh, you have liberals today. This is the most important election of our lifetime. This is the most important election in American history. America is becoming fascist. Uh, Trump is a Nazi. Bubble. And so, what's your response to that? Oh, we're going to run Joe Biden. You know, <laughs> it's 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 chilling. You know, if, if it weren't like the stakes weren't serious, you, you, you'd laugh at it. But but you can't. And so, um, and King was King understood that. And 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 the final act of his life was the Poor People's Campaign. And that's, that brought it all together. You know, we talked a little bit about that last week. This is uh, uh, a campaign not, you know, this isn't a Southern campaign about uh, uh, segregation or schools or buses or anything. This is a national campaign. Um, he wanted a poor people's campaign, an interracial uh, movement of the poor. When he announced that, he said, uh, we intend to channelize the smoldering rage and frustration of Negro people into an effective militant and nonviolent movement of massive proportions. We will also look for the participation of the millions of non-Negro poor, Indians, Mexican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Appalachians, and others, and we shall welcome assistance from all Americans of goodwill. And he announced as part of that an economic and social bill of rights, right? Going on, you know, this plays off of what FDR proposed, the economic bill of rights, what Bernie Sanders talked about, you know, that, King was talking about that in 1968. And, you know, he talked about uh, an economic underworld of poverty, joblessness, and unemployment. So again, he's talking about the, uh, the, the, the systemic failure of capitalism. This is 1968, 67 to 1968, right? Um, you know, where he talks about unemployment and wages and healthcare. Healthcare was a big issue uh, for Martin Luther King. Uh, talked about, you know, basic social issues like, uh, uh, um, police violence against black and black communities. One of the main um, demands of groups like uh, SNCC and the Black Panthers and SDS was community oversight of the police. That was, that was remember, we talked about participatory democracy. To them, that was a, a massive element of participatory democracy. You had a role in the community where you lived, and that included policing that community and overseeing the way police uh, acted in that community. Yeah. And there, in fact, in the 60s, there were quite a few cities that did you know, adopt and create uh, community oversight boards. I don't know if any of them are left now. Civilian, civilian oversight civilian boards. Board, I'm sorry. Um, I doubt there's many left now. And, you know, uh, so, but, you know, so King had this incredibly broad, comprehensive idea and that terrified the ruling class. It really did. And, you know, not that, I don't think there was necessarily this fear that like he was actually going to accomplish all this because the state has so much power and so many different strategies of co-optation and, the law and the courts and state violence and so forth. But, you know, it's like today, you know, I don't think Bernie Sanders is really the issue. I think it's the fact that so many millions of people, especially young people, uh, you know, are, are becoming more, you know, energized that not, not Bernie Sanders per se, it's the people who support Bernie Sanders. Yeah. The one thing I'll say, the one thing I'll say about the, the Sanders campaign is I actually do feel like, the Sanders campaign, both in 2016 and 2000 and 2020, is given like those um, those young people, middle aged people, even elder people, like a good outlet to participate with more progressive and radical politics and and get involved. And like, you know, I mean, 
the we the the squad for example which like we have a lot of critiques of them and I, I totally agree with all of those but like you know members of the squad actually came out of the Sanders campaign in 2016 and ran for office um, the new district attorney in San Francisco Chesa Boudin actually you know came out of the sort of Sanders movement um, we're also seeing like you know this sort of like organizing and I don't think it's been I don't think it's because of the Sanders campaign but like there's this organizing that we've seen in the last decade that in my opinion started with Occupy that has like kind of like fed its way into the into the Sanders campaign and actually kind of like at some level there's like where people are participating in this sort of like um, mainstream sort of like electoral uh, politics but then there are also people who are organizing in social movements they're organizing with labor they're organizing around like you know, racial justice and the environment and climate and et cetera. And I, I do feel like that there is like a sort of like, um, a, a sort of like uh, synchronicity going on there, which I think is, which is important. Um, for, for years, I've always heard a critique of the left is the critique is, is that the left is afraid to participate in electoral politics. And I, I do feel like there is like this, as far as like, a, not for American society, because I don't think actually things are much better, or maybe they're way worse for American society than they were 10 years ago, which is saying something. But, but like, I do feel like there's a lot of potential in that sort of like, that growth and that development and that sort of like rising up right now. Yeah, I mean, this has been an eternal question on the left, you know, what is the role of elections, and especially yeah. national elections and King, you know, uh, King was uh, not uh, a big advocate of it. Uh, um, you know, in 1968, actually, who was it? Uh, the Peace and Freedom Party. I forget who the organizer was, but they wanted King to run on a on a, a peace ticket with, uh, uh, I think, Benjamin Spock. And Ben Spock ended up running for president that year. Uh, King didn't do a lot that way. I mean, he kind of tended to focus on the, the kind of organizing, the community element of it, the, the empowerment element of it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that would be the, the issue with Sanders. Like, you have all these people, you know, fired up now. And where do you go? In 2016, they essentially had been, you know, and, and many of them did. I don't want to suggest that they're, they're all waiting around for Bernie, waiting for a savior, but uh, many of them did. They were waiting for 2020. And now, you know, he's, he's, he's lost. And his political career is essentially, you know, he's still a senator, but he's you know, basically over, right? And, you know, if you look at the bailout bill, um, you know, everybody's saying, oh, that's a Bernie Sanders bill. It's like, you know, come on, dude, let's like... It's a Barack Obama bill, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it gives a, a trillions of dollars to banks and offers trillions of dollars in, you know, Fed money to banks. And it has $250 billion for a one-off check and $250 billion for unemployment, you know, and 3.5 million people just lost their health insurance. So um, Bernie's relevancy, as much as they want to, to, to continue to laud him, is, is basically out. And, you know, and, and this, these are the same people who are, you know, a year ago talking about Jeremy Corbyn in, in Britain. So we've seen this this renunciation. He just retired and, like last week, right? As leader oh, of the party. Today. Was or it, was it this week? Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhere around here. And uh, um, and I think King understood that. And so even though, you know, King certainly would, you know, was 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 willing to campaign and was glad to see people like uh, um, Carl Stokes and Richard Hatcher, the first two blacks elected to mayors of big city. That wasn't his element. Martin Luther King was not running elections. His goal was not, I mean, he obviously believed in voter registration and voting, but that wasn't his prime purpose. His, his aim was not to get people to vote or get certain people elected. He believed that you needed a, a big, massive grassroots movement for empowerment. 
And I don't think, you know, Bernie Sanders is like, you know, we'll see now. I mean, he's running charities for COVID. Those, right now what he's doing is basically charity work, and that's great. But, you know, we'll see what he does after this if he basically unleashes, you know, and just – but, you know, he's going to be a good soldier. He's going to campaign for Biden and, and you know, because he – as SDS said, he wants to maintain his relevancy in that, right? Yeah. But I think King, when he, you know, the poor people's movement really, you know, says so much about him that you never hear and you're not going to hear about on Martin Luther King Day, right? This guy had a, a very, you know, sharp and, 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 you know, at times virulent critique of this capitalist system, of this political system of liberalism. Never really called him out because, you know, he, he kind of needed to maintain some type of relationship with him. But I mean, you know, it's not very cryptic when you read. I mean, this is very public too. This isn't like in back door, back rooms, you know, smoke-filled rooms or anything like that. These are speeches. These are are are, are books. These are articles he's written, uh, where he's talking about this the systemic failure of the United States, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, in 1967, 1968, and this, you know, essentially is the end of the civil rights movement. I mean, by that time, uh, the South, you know, most Americans have looked away. The South has been fixed as far as they're concerned. So, like we were saying. You know, Archie Bunker probably was a Democrat in 1964, and in 1968 he sees, you know, riots, and he sees students protesting, and he sees anti-war rallies, and he sees Black Panthers, and he hears Nixon talk about law and order and reform, and Nixon has commercials where he shows Black Panthers, and he shows women, and, you know, and hippies and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, those people, they don't care anymore. As far as they're concerned, it's over. So rights movement ended, and they can walk away from it. A lot of younger Blacks are saying, well, you know, that doesn't really help us. You know, like you mentioned last week, there are uh, blow-ups in Newark, in Detroit, in South Central. And so King understands that and steps into it. He could have walked away. He stepped right into it. He stepped into that hurricane. And it wasn't just to get somebody elected to a certain office. And ultimately what happened, you know, one of the, 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 the effects of the civil rights movement, probably the biggest effect of the civil rights movement was it did create a black middle class. We mentioned that before. It also created a, a class of black political leaders, people like John Lewis, People, you know, you start to see in the later 70s and forward, um, African-Americans start getting elected to, in larger numbers as mayors, as representatives, and so forth. But generally, they do that as part of a, a political, I don't want to call it a political machine anymore, but they do that essentially as part of this kind of democratic structure. They're not kind of running, they're not going rogue, right? They are Democrats. Yeah. And they become part of that democratic establishment. And so you have like the best example of that today would be Clyburn in South Carolina. Yeah. Well, they become a, a, a pillar or a component of the democratic coalition, which is, it's unwavering, right? It, it, oh, absolutely. It's the, 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 the most reliable, right? Yeah. And, and yet that's, you know, the, it's not a, a radical uh, anti-systemic movement at all. I mean, you have Clyburn, like I said, Clyburn and John Lewis, who, you know, I mean, a brilliant guy, a martyr, right? But um. I mean, Lewis is a very loyal Democrat. Lewis, uh, I believe he supported Hillary Clinton against Obama in 2008, if I'm not mistaken, early on. Um, he's always been, you know, kind of. And so you have this creation of this, this black middle class, this black political class, you know, black empowerment comes as capitalist empowerment, not as popular or people's empowerment. And I think King would, would have problems with that. And if, you know, if you've ever watched the Boondocks episode, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, that's kind of one of the key elements of it, Right. And I think what's called Return of the King and, and, and King comes back and, you know, he's saying, this isn't what I fought for. This isn't what I died for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, it's, yeah, I don't know if I have that much to say about that other than I think it's like a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a dynamic, which is only like the, the sort of like, 
there, there's not been like a shift there, right? Even though in the, just in the last like five or six years, we've seen this sort of like movement around like the movement for black lives come up and like those establishment black democratic political figures that, um, and I'm not saying conservative like Republican, but that sort of conservative black middle class is like still not really challenging the status quo, the way in which you see like young black activists today. I know actually Black Lives Matter is a perfect example of that. Yeah. I mean, didn't, what was Obama? What did he say? I mean, he was fairly critical. I think he said it was kind of the perfunctory, I understand where they're coming from, but kind of response, right? Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. Is Black this Black really Black the way to do it? Yeah, that kind of thing, right? And so yeah. Black Lives Matter is a great example of that, where you have people who are actually trying to organize, you know, at the street level in Ferguson and Baltimore and places like that, New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, uh, well, there's, the, you know, on this subject, I think I mentioned this before, there's a great uh, publication called the Black Agenda Report. Yeah. And um, it's easy to find They're all over the internet. They have podcasts and um, Adolf Reed often writes for them at Glenn Ford. And uh, they refer to it as the black misleadership class, you know, and they're talking about people like Clyburn and Al Sharpton and others. And so, I mean, it's difficult to talk about. Liberals don't talk about race. They, they want to avoid it, right? And to them, race is like, let's make sure that Al Sharpton and Jim Clyburn, you know, are satisfied when in fact, black. and so, you know, remember when one of the Black Lives Matters activists confronted Hillary Clinton in 2016, and she just shushed her off, you yeah. know, and, was so, and, and Clyburn, you know, had Hillary's back. Yeah. And all those people had Hillary's back. And, and honestly, that in that moment, the Black Lives Matter activists were also like, you know, interrupting and bird dogging Bernie Sanders at the same time around, you know, issues around the, around Black Lives Matter. And all the white liberals never critiqued Hillary for that, but like they were like very critical of like Sanders response and Sanders needed to, you know, hear this and that sort of thing, which I always found interesting. Um, Real quick thing about the Black Agenda report. I once put a tweet out about how disappointing, how disappointing it was when young white millennials uh, still think that Obama is their savior and Margaret Kimberly, who's a writer and editor of the Black Agenda Report, tweeted back at me that she's like the Obama Obama 08 was the was a billion dollar psyops operation, biggest in history. <laughs> <laughs> she's very good. That Margaret Kimberly is one of their yeah. editors. Uh, the yeah. late Bruce Dixon, who just died, I don't know, six months ago, was a brilliant writer. Yeah, active politically, great, great, uh, great publication. You know, one great of analysis. It really is, and it's. And I mean, it's it's about African American politics, but it's about much more than that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the, I think they you we're overwhelmed now with the internet of stuff. Like every day there's a million different things, you know, they're, you know, call themselves lefty and you can't look at it all. So black agenda reports, one of the handful of five or six. They just read it, but they also have a great podcast too, that comes out every Monday. Yeah. And that's one of the, the ones I, I try to make a, a, a regular habit of visiting. You know, there's others, yeah. you know, now and then you get an article, but. There's a lot of junk out there too, right? Not like the Green and Red podcast, which everybody needs to be listening to. Yeah, exactly. But we're coming up on a, like a million listens. We're almost there. So, you, know. <laughs> you should tell your friends. Kind of, kind of sum it up. We can finish it up here. Um, you know, and, King, and, and, and I think when King moves into this movement, into this moment where he begins to analyze class and talk about poverty and talk about, you know, the structure of American society and capitalism, he loses the support of most Americans. And, you know, that's kind of, if you want to say the civil rights movement ended, you can, you can kind of say that. I mean, obviously the, you know, until the 1980s, you definitely saw an upsurge in black participation in politics and blacks being elected to office and, you know, middle-class blacks and things like that. 
but since then it's it's harder to see and clearly right now we're you know everybody's kind of going downhill right now and blacks are taking you know coronavirus is is viruses aren't racist but the health system is so you're seeing a, a very disproportionate number of people uh who are dying from covid or, or african-american or the poor african-americans this weekend the new york times is repeat reporting that the three covid19 hotspots in the u.s right now are new york detroit and new orleans which are all like heavily populated you know with with black folks and like at least detroit and, and new orleans are like extremely poor in the in the city with like you know a very with a failing healthcare system yeah exactly and and I think that was what King was talking about. And and you don't really get that critique at that level anymore. I mean, Martin Luther King, when he talked, you know, the media was there, the New York, everybody was there. Nobody who has that kind of uh, ability to attract attention. Uh, I, I mean, Sanders dies to, to some extent. I mean, the media did a hit job on Sanders, obviously. And, you know, they didn't do that on King. They really couldn't have because he had such credibility at the time. And so... Um, you know, I, I think we have this as lefties, you know, when you hear uh, another lefty say something good about Sanders, you want to challenge him. Like I was listening to this podcast with somebody who was interviewing Adolf Reed, who said Bernie Sanders revolutionary. You're, you don't know what you're talking about. But then when somebody from the outside attacks Sanders, you kind of have his back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, go ahead. Okay. I, go ahead. I just want to say one thing about Sanders real quick yeah. is that like, like to me that like I, there's a lot of things I appreciate about Sanders and every time I hear a liberal or even a, a conservative like criticize Sanders I definitely want to like you know you know digitally punch them in the face or whatever but <laughs> but like also like Sanders like King comes out of a movement he built a movement Sanders doesn't come out of that like yeah. he never worked with movement groups you know up until I, it, well he, he never wanted to you know to work with movement groups or having to do with them until he wanted their endorsements in 2016 and 2020 you know, he's, he's a kind of like standard politician. I, his politics are good, you know, compared to most everyone else in the mainstream, but like also he's not out of, out of the movement the way in which like King was. And I think that's, that's an important distinction, but I do think oh, lots of people yeah, who've been involved in his campaign are going to go back and help fuel a movement. So. Yeah. Well, let's hope because I mean, no King, yeah. I mean, King was, was from the grassroots. He, I mean, he wasn't from that, but he, he emerged out of it with the sit-ins and SNCC and all that. I mean, he wasn't, you know, that wasn't his background. His background was he was very educated. He was a well-known minister, but he did. He, he became this brilliant mobilizer and organizer, and he supported that. And, um, yeah, Sanders, I mean, Sanders deserves, if nothing else, I mean, the issue of health care is critical. And Sanders has hired a lot of movement organizers to be working in his organizing yeah. department, though I will give him credit there. Um, Friends of mine, actually. So. Oh, cool. And, you know, and, 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 you know, the, by, by making healthcare a national issue, especially right now, I mean, he's, that's great. That I'm genuinely, that is a crucial right now we're seeing it, you know, and one would think that what we're going through right now with sub COVID would be the propellant to finally get this over the line. And in fact, you have Biden, I mean, imagine if Biden says I would, I would, I would veto it. I mean, that would assume that you would have a Senate that would pass that bill and he's going to still veto it. Right. Yeah. I mean, if this guy isn't in the tank and I, you know, got to believe that a Martin Luther King, 2020 version would be appalled and outraged by that. And, you know, it's because of this capitalist attack on King that you have the emergence of groups like the Black Panthers and you have this emergence of Black nationalism and Black separatism because they're, they're basically saying, what's the point of working within this system, right? And internationals. And, and the, one of the things I actually always appreciate about like Black black radicals and the Black Panthers is that they're, they're also like this level of international solidarity. 
mm. um, which they like kind of like put into their rhetoric as well, which you didn't, you don't necessarily, you definitely don't see like out of the civil rights movement. You see King no, talks and, about, King talks about it, but not. King does. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, uh, you know, that's my point. When he talks about Vietnam, I mean, no one is doing that today at a comparable level. No. I mean, Ron Paul is far more uh, uh, aggressive in, in, in uh, attacking Trump and on foreign policy issues than, than Sanders is. Yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, King, King really was. What's to say that I can to kind of sum it up? I mean, I think it shows, you know, again, what liberalism can and can't do. It can reform society. It can smooth out the rough edges, but it's not going to fundamentally restructure things. The Southern apartheid system was abhorrent on moral levels, on political levels, on economic levels. And, you know, it was not broadly supported nationally or obviously globally. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons, including publicity, to dismantle it. And dismantling it did not change the equation of power in the United States between Wall Street and between corporations and finance and the people, right? What King suggested afterward was a challenge to that distribution of power within the system. And that's a huge difference. And even Sanders isn't really challenging that distribution. Well, yeah, I guess he is to some extent, but it's just different. It is. It's totally different. And, you know, I, I mean, we keep focusing on him. And then one of the problems we have in, in focusing on King does the same thing. I just focus on these individuals, right, instead of the broader picture. And, you know, Bernie Sanders is coming along in a period when things have gotten so much worse. And so, you know, 25 years ago, you know, what Sanders said you know, if the Democrats had adopted it then, if they hadn't been so damned adamant about moving further and further to the right, you know, it wasn't going to create a better society. I mean, it wasn't going to create the society we probably wanted. It would create a better society. You know, had they not continued to follow Reagan to the right or follow Bush to the right or the DLC, we got to do one of these just like on, you know, the DLC and the Clinton and Obama Democrats because that's the- Coming soon. That's, Coming that's, soon. The, that's the final nail in the coffin. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first counterattack comes right after the the- the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act are passed when King becomes this kind of class-based leader. And that's the first counterattack where the system goes after these, these folks, right? And I think the creation of the Democratic Leadership Conference kind of ends it. That's when the, the neoliberals or whatever you want to call them have won and people's movements now are no longer going to be part of this Democratic Party agenda, except every four years when you go to these folks and say, you need to vote for us because look at how bad. And I mean, and right now they're, they're not even hiding it. This is the Democratic strategy, you know, Trump sucks. Trump is so dangerous. You can't afford to sit it out. You know, doesn't matter if we'll do anything for you. You know, it's a trophy. They go take out the trophy case every four years and dust off and carry it around. Yeah, it's it's difficult. And you know, remember in 2016 when Trump was speaking and he's to black voters and he said, um, "You should vote for me. What do you have, what do you got to lose?" And he was attacked for that. But you know, there were actually I saw like blacks on the left who said, "You know, he's right." <laughs> you know, uh, and of Charles Barkley, Sir Charles even said that once. Charles said, you know, blacks need to quit voting for the Democratic Party because they just take us for granted. So uh, Donald Trump and Charles Barkley agree on something. So I don't, I don't know what that means. But uh, anyway, um, you know, there's like, there's just so damn much in, uh, on this, you know, and I think it's important. And the civil rights movement, you know, is, is in books. If you look on it, that's, that's one of the high water marks in American history, right? We have a few where what, what used to be called consensus historians came together, you know, the end of the Civil War, right? We all came together, we defeated slavery. And the Civil Rights Movement, where we all came together and we defeated the scourge of Jim Crow. And so this is always triumph, and King is triumph. King is one of the great legends in American history. And he should be, but he should be for who he was, not for a speech he gave in 1963 or for his alleged docility in the face of Southern violence. 
yeah. because that's not, he was so much more than that. And that's not really who he was anyway. And that's what we want to get out of this. And, and also to again, say that this is what liberalism is. It wasn't like they met well and they tried to do more. This is who they are. They did what they were going to do. You know, they allowed reform within that context. They accepted King within the context of Southern desegregation. And that was it. That's who they are. It's, it's true. And, and anything else was a threat. Yep. And still is. Still, still is. is. Well, green and red once more. Uh, we, we thank you for listening and, um, it's uh, always good to talk to you and get feedback and uh, please let us know what you think of these. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments or ideas for something to talk about in the future or for guests or something like that, um, uh, let us know. Yeah. And you can, as always, you can uh, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can be a patron on patreon.com backslash green red podcast. We're going to be setting up some, uh, more web tools, which hopefully include a one-time, you can't actually do a one-time donate on Patreon, but we're going to be setting up some one-time page, uh, donate uh, tools as well here before too long. And I think what we want to close it is the last minute or two of the uh, of King's last speech that he gave in the night before he was shot uh, in Memphis. Uh, it's the, I have been to the mountaintop speech. And we're just going to play the last couple of minutes of it. And then we will uh, talk to y'all at our next episode. Here you go. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live. A long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.